Hello, and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Thank you for joining me. Having made it to the end of the 18th century, today we're going to look at the last 200 or so years in our story of the Christian Church. Uh, One caveat before I get started, Uh, you may notice that as we move into the 20th century, I begin to focus more on my own denomination, the United Church of Canada. Um, That, of course, reflects the original audience for this course. And having said that, or having made that confession, I can assure you that the trends and developments I describe were very much part of the shared experience of mainline North American denominations. We are more alike than we often let on, uh, for good or for ill. Uh, Again, thank you for joining me. It seems a bit odd that two of the most important figures of the 19th century were born on the same day, February 12, 1809. While many would argue that Abraham Lincoln's influence was limited to the U.S., uh, few would dispute the worldwide influence of Charles Darwin and his ideas. It's ironic that the man credited with finally destroying Christian confidence in God was trained in theology. Darwin began in medicine and discovered a squeamishness that prevented any career in this field. He completed his training for the Anglican priesthood, uh, yet never lost his interest in science. His mentor, a professor of botany at the university, uh, was an ordained minister, and so the mixture of scientific inquiry and ministry seemed natural. Everyone needs a hobby. In 1831, following the urging of his mentor, Darwin embarked on a five-year journey aboard the U.S. Beagle, circumnavigating the globe and making an extended stay on the Pacific coast of South America. As an unpaid naturalist, he was free to observe and record a world very foreign to his own. It was in this setting that he began to formulate the idea of natural selection. The culmination of his research was the publication of On the Origin of Species in 1859, the first printing sold out in a single day. Evolution, it should be noted, was not his idea. It was a topic of scientific discussion for years before Darwin wrote his book. He simply added to the idea that species change and adapt over time by demonstrating that they will favor one characteristic over another in order to thrive. It must be pointed out that Darwin never used the term survival of the fittest, nor did he extend his theory to social science or economics. He did consider human evolution in light of natural selection, but did so largely to demonstrate that humans are not unique from other mammals. On the topic of religion, he was largely guarded. He wrote to a friend saying, I feel most deeply that the whole subject is too profound for human intellect. A dog might as well speculate on the mind of Sir Isaac Newton. It's difficult from our perspective to understand the controversy his theory caused. But in a world where many understood human beings as God's crowning achievement, his theories were shocking. 
Could there be morality? Or could dominion over other creatures be justified if we were just another species? Natural selection seemed to remove the need for an all-powerful God to continue to create and direct the unfolding of the world. In many ways, poor Darwin was an unwitting focal point in an ongoing debate. During the age of reason, God's activity in the world was already in question. In the latter half of the 19th century, however, the debate became more heated and the opposition to these ideas more organized. Alfred Lord Tennyson's In Memoriam and Christina Rossetti's In the Bleak Midwinter are just two examples of a poetic response to the debate in this era. And despite the efforts of thinkers such as Henry Ward Beecher and others to make evolution and faith compatible, the divide between science and religion only grew. So here's a question. Do you think science and faith can live together? Perhaps uh, take a moment to discuss. Along with the divide between science and religion came the divide between liberal and conservative. You may remember from episode three, the Q gospel and the theory that there was a lost book which contained all the common material between Matthew and Luke. This type of inquiry, commonly called biblical criticism, began in the early 19th century, centered mostly in Germany, and scholars began to assess the Bible as a work of literature and ask questions concerning authorship, date, composition, and the authority of whole books or large sections of books. This approach spread throughout Protestant academic circles and expanded the study of theology to make it into a field of research and inquiry. Biblical scholars began to speculate on authentic and inauthentic aspects of the Bible, as well as a search for the core meaning of the text. Again, something we take for granted was a revolution in thinking. Not everyone, however, embraced this inquiry. The strongest reaction to liberal ideas occurred in the United States under the leadership of John Nelson Darby, who founded the Plymouth Brethren, C.I. Schofield, an author, and Dwight L. Moody, famous revivalist, along with his song leader, Ira Sankey. Throughout the United States, theological schools and denominations squared off between liberal theological ideas and the conservative notion of biblical inerrancy, the idea that the scriptures, as translated in the King James Version, were flawless. Problems in the text, then, were simply the result of the limited capacity of the human mind to understand. Conservative pastors and scholars, it turns out, had powerful friends. Lyman and Milton Stewart, oil tycoons from California, financed the publication of a 12-volume series of books entitled The Fundamentals, A Testimony to Truth. Uh, this was published beginning in 1910. The series was distributed free of charge to virtually everyone involved in any form of ministry in the English-speaking world. It gave the movement a focal point and a new name. 
Fundamentalists rallied around soul-saving, biblical inerrancy, prayer and healing, and a fierce opposition to modernism. By modernism, they meant the assumption that traditional beliefs may be reassessed in the light of contemporary thought. It is ironic that conservative Protestants remained the most opposed to the Roman Catholic Church in this period, and at the same time, uh, Rome joined them in officially condemning modernism. That was in 1907. It would be much later in the 20th century that conservative Protestants and Roman Catholics would see each other as allies. Meanwhile, liberal thinkers continue to examine theology in light of the modern world, and in particular, the human condition. Picking up the social awareness of the Methodists and Congregationalists, such as Henry Ward Beecher, thinkers began to focus on the kingdom of God and the impulse to assist the coming of the kingdom through social service and activism. It is most commonly referred to as the social gospel movement. In the U.S., the leader of this movement was Walter Rauschenbusch of the University of Rochester, and in Canada it was J.S. Woodsworth, a Methodist minister and the founder of the Socialist Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, now known as the New Democratic Party. Woodsworth, a son of the manse, was ready to leave the ministry by 1907, concerned with a growing conservatism in the church, particularly among wealthier Methodists. He was persuaded to remain by being put in charge of the all-people's mission in the north end of Winnipeg. There, Woodsworth uh, worked chiefly with new immigrants, uh, his efforts and ideas discussed in his books, Strangers Within Our Gates, uh, 1909, and My Neighbor, 1911. The title of the latter book referred to the question posed to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, Who is my neighbor? Jesus' response to the question was to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, a central touchstone for the movement. The social program of the movement, later adopted as policy within uh, the socialist CCF party, was assisting unions, profit sharing, the end of child labor, assistance to immigrants, cooperatives, nationalization of industry, and a social safety net that included free medicine and old age pensions. All these changes would lead to social and spiritual regeneration and help bring about the kingdom of God. The movement led many, including Woodsworth, into the political realm, along with Tommy Douglas, a Baptist minister, who went on to form the first left-wing government in North America in the province of Saskatchewan. And Nellie McClung, the most prominent laywoman in the Methodist Church, who pressed for women's rights, most famously the Persons case of 1929. She was also central to the 1916 decision to allow women to vote for the first time. What she and her colleagues challenged was the Dominion Elections Act of 1900, which included this rather shocking definition of a voter. 
quote, a male person, including an Indian, excluding a Mongolian or Chinese, no woman, idiot, lunatic, or criminal shall vote, unquote. From 1921 to 1926, she served in the Alberta legislature and pressed the social gospel as an opposition liberal MLA. The social gospel had a wide influence. Lester Pearson, a Canadian prime minister and Nobel Prize winner, and Norman Bethune, a medical missionary and a hero of the Chinese Revolution, were both sons of the manse, or a son of a preacher man, if you're musically inclined. Other churchmen tried a truly novel approach, leaving mainline churches to form the labor church. Salem Bland and A.E. Smith, among others, created a new denomination to fuse the gospel and the union message. The Labor Church in Toronto, located on Spadina Avenue, was a central gathering place for Christians on the left and their vision of practical Christianity. Most large churches uh, in this era, 1920s, had a labor church. Within the churches, pastors and laypeople committed to the social gospel began to reach out to like-minded people in other liberal mainline denominations, forming associations and cooperating on various issues. This was part of a worldwide movement towards greater cooperation among the churches. The Bible Society, 1804, the Young Men's Christian Association, 1844, the World Student Christian Movement, 1895, and the World Missionary Conference, 1910, were all part of a new multi-denominational approach to the problems that plagued the world. Particularly in the area of missions, competition between churches seemed counterproductive. Beginning in 1854, missionary-sponsoring churches began to meet and divide the world into areas of activity. The impulse to send missionaries abroad was strong, and the desire to go and bring the world to Christ was also strong, particularly among young people. Within Canada, there was also intensive missionary work among indigenous people, a topic uh, to which I will return later. So a spirit of cooperation among Christians and the scandal of Christian disunity led various churches to reassess their independence. By 1875, several branches of the Presbyterian Church of Canada formed a union, as did the various Methodist factions in 1884. That would be the Wesleyan Methodist Church in Canada, Wesleyan Methodist Conference of Eastern British America, Methodist New Connection Church in Canada, that's connection with an X, uh, Methodist Episcopal Church in Canada, Bible Christian Church of Canada, and the Primitive Methodist Church in Canada. It's a lot of Methodists. In 1902, formal union talks began between the Presbyterian, Methodist, and Congregationalist churches in Canada, and in 1911, a basis of union was crafted. Interrupted uh, by the First World War, uh, 
church union proceeded on June the 10th, 1925, at the Mutual Street Arena in Toronto. Unfortunately, one-third of the Presbyterian Church opted to remain outside the union. After a lengthy court battle, the United Church retained the right to the name Presbyterian Church of Canada, and the remaining Presbyterians were forced to call themselves the Presbyterian Church in Canada. Bad form, United Church. The interruption of World War I also interrupted the liberal impulse that the world could become a better place through reason, thought, and a human desire to build the kingdom. Suddenly, the world appeared a more threatening place, and man's inhumanity to man became a troubling theme that would not go away. This was felt most profoundly in Germany, where universities continued to produce the most influential Protestant thinkers. The leading theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, began his work in this era. Born in Basel, Switzerland, son of the manse, Karl Barth was a pastor and a professor who was increasingly dissatisfied with liberal theology's accommodation with contemporary culture. In 1919, he published his Epistle to the Romans, a biblical commentary that was, in fact, an articulation of a new theological movement now called Neo-Orthodoxy. The Bible, Bart wrote, was not a literary collection or a program for social reform, but the Word of God, which is totally other and not defined by our cultural ideas. He would say, it is not what we think of God that counts, but what God thinks of us. Humans are sinful and can only know God as revealed in Jesus Christ. The scholars influenced by Bart are a who's who of 20th century theologians, Reinhold Niebuhr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Paul Tillich, and many others. While neo-Orthodoxy dominated the first half of the 20th century, theologies of liberation came to dominate the latter half of the century. I say theologies because there were several strains, and the term liberation theology refers most often to Latin American liberation theology, yet also applied elsewhere in the third world. This is distinct from feminist theology, black theology, and others. Liberation theology began with the experience of Roman Catholic priests and workers in the poorest regions of Latin America. They formed base communities for the purpose of worship and mutual support. The worship became a time to reflect on the Bible message in the light of the experience of poverty and powerlessness. The theme of liberation was a focus, along with Jesus' concern for the poor and the vulnerable. The key belief that grew out of this process of reflection was God's preferential option for the poor. The idea that God is uniquely concerned for the poor and vulnerable and seeks their liberation. It is the task of the church to undertake God's desire for liberation and challenge systems of oppression. 
Feminist theology is based on the assumption that theology and faith have been distorted by the dominance of men, patriarchy, and that Christianity has served as an instrument in the subjugation of women throughout history. It points to overt signs of oppression, such as women being barred from the priesthood, as well as more subtle signs, such as male language for God. Feminist theology also encourages women to express their experience of spirituality as distinct from men. Some feminist theologians question the church's focus on sinfulness and depravity, noting that perhaps this is not human experience, but men's experience. There's a greater emphasis on inclusivity, connectedness, and liberation. The whole of Christian experience, they suggest, should be re-examined in the light of women's experience. Black theology is the next theology of liberation we'll look at. James Cone wrote, What, if anything, does the Christian gospel have to say to powerless black men if their existence is threatened on a daily basis by the insidious tentacles of white power? Cohn felt that if the gospel has nothing to say to people as they confront the daily realities of life, it is a lifeless message. If Christianity is not real for blacks, he said, then they will reject it. Again, uh, this extended quote from James Cohn. In Christ, God enters human affairs and takes sides with the oppressed. Their suffering becomes his. Their despair divine despair. Jesus had little toleration for the middle or upper-class religious snob whose attitude attempted to usurp the sovereignty of God and destroy the dignity of the poor. The kingdom is for the poor and not the rich, because the former has nothing to expect from the world, while the latter's entire existence is grounded in his commitment to worldly things." The poor man may expect everything from God, while the rich man may expect nothing because he refuses to free himself from his own pride. It is not that poverty is a precondition for entrance into the kingdom, but those who recognize their utter dependence on God and wait on God despite the miserable absurdity of life are typically the poor, according to Jesus." There is little doubt that the United Church of Canada has been profoundly affected by theologies of liberation in our nearly 100-year existence. The ordination of women in 1936, social justice work, controversial decisions regarding human sexuality, the work for racial justice— the peace movement, and the Native Apology of 1986 all point to the impact of contemporary theology on the Church. Or does it? In many ways, the Church looked away during those few years when building the kingdom fell out of fashion, and then returned its gaze on society when liberation movements made it appropriate again to work with the downtrodden. The social gospel never really went away. All we did was change the language. 
missionaries became overseas personnel, mission sites became outreach centers, and everyone carried on in a more sensitive and hopefully less paternalistic way. I'm going to conclude in 1986, uh, truly a watershed year for the United Church of Canada. We began to confront our past, a past that will continue to travel with us for some time to come. Here is the text of the apology that the United Church made to Indigenous members of the Church in 1986. The apology was made by the moderator, the very Reverend Bob Smith. Long before my people journeyed to this land, your people were here, and you received from your elders an understanding of creation and of the mystery that surrounds us all that was deep and rich and to be treasured. We did not hear you when you shared your vision. In our zeal to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ, we were closed to the value of your spirituality. We confused Western ways and culture with the depth and breadth and length and height of the gospel of Christ. We imposed our civilization as a condition of accepting the gospel. We tried to make you like us, and in doing so, we helped to destroy the vision that made you what you were. As a result, you and we are poor, and the image of the Creator in us is twisted, blurred, and we are not what we are meant by God to be. We ask you to forgive us and to walk together with us in the Spirit of Christ so that our peoples may be blessed and God's creation healed. It seems an appropriate place to end our story. Next time, we'll dive into Christian ethics, where we'll all learn to do the right thing. I have wallet-sized cards for you to print so that you never have to make another ethical decision without a handy set of guidelines. A final note, if you're enjoying these episodes, please leave a comment on iTunes or whatever podcast provider you use. Thank you in advance, and thank you for joining me.